So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning to hear your word, we give thanks that you have spoken to us, you have condescended, and you have granted us the knowledge of you by your spirit. And so as we come to this word this morning, we ask that you would speak. For your servants are here and we are present to listen. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is our final week in the Psalms of Ascent. As a preacher, there are certain sermon series that you're glad to see go, and certain ones that you lament the end of, and this is one of those that I particularly lament. It's been a wonderful journey through the summer months, tracing the pilgrimage of those travelers to Zion many millennia ago, when they would use these psalms as their traveling songs on the way to Zion. They would sing these, but they weren't simply just traveling ditties that they would gather together and sing. Rather, they were important theological statements that were devoted to the core beliefs and the core convictions of what it meant to believe and to serve the one true God. And so we traveled through these 14 different psalms, and finally we conclude here today with Psalm 133. It's considered the most fractured and contentious church in all of Christendom. That's a dubious distinction. But in old Jerusalem, on the purported site of the crucifixion and also the burial of Jesus' body, above that site, there is built a very large church. It's known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Six different Christian denominations have jurisdiction over this church. It's been this way for quite some time, and there's anything but peace at the church. They, they look at each other um, with some contempt. They stare one another down as they have their, hold their certain ceremonies. They interrupt one another's different services, and they've even broken out into fistfights. Not simply on one occasion, but actually on five since the 1970s. And you see, what's really sad is it's not a new situation at all. In 1192 A.D., the year 1192, doormen were hired and commissioned to unlock and relock the doors every morning and every evening so that everyone would have equal access. 
Because the six different denominations could not agree about the doorman, two Islamic families were hired. And those same Islamic families today continue to preside over the doors. It's a far from peaceful situation, fractured, messed up to the extreme. And we look at that, and it can all seem a bit petty. And it really is. But it's also too close, isn't it? Unity is sometimes the last word that we think of when it comes to the church, and especially to our services of worship. Our preferences and personalities, our conflicts and our opinions frequently disrupt the church and its service to God. And our psalm this morning, though, extols the unity that we are to share as we gather together, as we assemble for worship. Verse 1, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is what the psalm is about. It's about the goodness of when we come together and we share in a common worship all that God does among us, how good and cherished that is to be. Now, this unity that's captured in the psalm, it refers to a common heart and mind that the people of God share together. And it can be looked at in many different aspects, but three main ones, because the first is that unity is going to have a relational component to it. That there is a unity shared amongst the pilgrims that are on the way to Zion, that are gathered for worship in God's name, that there's a relational harmony that's present among them. There's peace. There's not a lack of reconciliation, but rather reconciled to one another. They share in that peace together. But that peace is not simply social. What we know is that peace exists because there are shared convictions, beliefs that they share in common. And those beliefs are that this God has sworn a promise to them to forgive their sins and to redeem them. And so their relational harmony is actually derived from their theological unity, that they share conviction that God loves them and has condescended to them, that he loves us in Jesus Christ, and so we then share in a relational and theological unity with one another. But all of this relational and theological unity is bound together by this common experience of worship. That as we gather in the presence of God, that is where all this meets, the rubber meets the road, and where it all comes together. And in Psalm 133, we see exactly why this union we share in worship is so good and pleasant. And there's three dynamics that the psalm will take us through. First, we see that there is a gracious hospitality that takes place in worship. If you follow with me in verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And so the unity that the people of God experience is likened to, it's a simile here, to the beard of Aaron and oil running down that beard. Now this should strike you as strange. As a non-bearded man, I don't know what it is to have oil on my face, and it doesn't sound particularly pleasant. Several years ago, one of my friends encouraged me during the month of November to grow out my beard. John Lawler, our assistant pastor who's on study leave this week, found it funny because I looked somewhat like a teenager attempting to grow a mustache. Dottie Brooks, if you remember the dear woman who passed away several years ago, came up to me 
as I was growing out that beard, and she said, Chuck, I like my men clean shaven. <laughs> I learned two things that day. I was her man, <laughs> and that I was going to go shave. <laughs> and so we have here a cultural reference that we need to appreciate and understand. Men did grow beards, and the more fulsome your beard was, the more sign of vitality and health in your body, and that's the way it was understood. And then oil was used as something that was pleasing. It was aromatic. It was uh, a sign of God's blessing. But particularly that oil was used as a sign of hospitality. When a traveler entered into your home or family was welcome to share a meal, it was an unusual and strong display of kindness to anoint someone with oil. And so it was a display of warm hospitality. And please note that this is not a small amount of oil that's being used. All the description that we have here is that there's a super abundance. This oil flowing over, down the beard, trickling across, and then down onto his clothing. This is indicating that it was a warm reception that was taking place there in the courts of God. This is the way that we're to understand it. And this verse speaks of something that is to take place in our midst, that there is a horizontal component to when we gather together for worship, that when we gather, there is to be a welcome that is extended to one another that joins us together in which there is a kindness that's being demonstrated, that horizontal dimension to our life with God. And that is why in the Ten Commandments, we can never tear apart or sever love from God and love for neighbor that the two are always combined. And this is what's being worked out here in Psalm 133, is there is to be this gracious, warm hospitality and welcome that takes place. Several years ago, fellow clergy in our denomination attended one of our worship services, and we gathered for lunch after the service, and he was asking me a few questions about the rationale behind some different things of the service. And he said, well, I really enjoyed it, but there was one thing in particular that I found disturbing. I said, well, what, what was that? What was, what was disturbing? Now, I was expecting it to be a critique of the sermon. He said, well, you had a moment where everybody greeted one another, and it just messed up the entire service. All your momentum was fractured, and then it was like we were just trying to gather everything back together from then. And I thought, well, that's a unique perspective. He was saying that we messed up the vertical thing that's happening between us and God because we had done the horizontal thing. And so we went on to have a conversation about how those two are never torn apart. We never become purely about the social and the relational, but the theological is always going to involve that horizontal element. When Paul ministers to the Roman church, when they were so fractured between Jew and Gentile, in chapter 15, as he closes the letter, he says, welcome one another as you have been welcomed in Jesus Christ. And that's the goodness of Christian worship. That when we gather together in the name of Jesus, that we extend a family welcome to those who are gathered together with us. That we do not distinguish one another by color or by class or by any other distinction that we can devise as human beings according to the flesh. But rather, how we distinguish one another is by profession of faith. It's what we confess we believe about what God has done for us in Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection. That is what gathers us. That is what assembles us. That is what unites us. And so we extend that warm hospitality 
not with oil, but welcoming people into family. Drawing them in because this is who our God is for us and what he has done for us. And so this is the first dynamic that we see taking place in this unity. Now second, in verse 3, we see that there's also renewal. If you follow along, there is another simile here. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now this is once again a metaphor from the ancient world that's difficult for us at first to unlock. But Hermon was a mountain, is one of the tallest in all of Israel in the far north, 10,000 feet above sea level. And it was known for the vitality of life all the way up through its peak, even in the dry season. The reason that it had such lushness and there was greenery through the dry season was due to the heavy dews that fell. Each night as morning transitioned, the dew would come and surround the mountain and it would give a freshness and vitality to everything that lived there. And what the psalm says is that that is what the unity of God's people in worship is like. It's like the dew that falls upon the mountains that gives life. Mercies that are new every day because great is the faithfulness of God. That he doesn't abandon us. That he doesn't leave us. That he renews us. And he restores us. That this is the work that he does. And this is what God does in our corporate assembly. He comes to renew and to refresh. He comes to remind us of all that is ours in Jesus. That he has toppled over our sins. And whatever faults and failures you may bring to this room today, his promise stands more surely and more strongly to tell you that he forgives. And he's a God filled with love and compassion. And he will renew and restore you. Perhaps it is that you're full of fear and your anxieties capture you and control your life. Your God issues promises to you that he'll never harm you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never leave you. That's the God who stands in our midst when we gather. That he hears our prayers. That he promises to strengthen us in our battle against sin. This is everything that God does to renew us. Now it's crucial to note the dynamic of how this renewal takes place. Three times we're actually told in this psalm that something is running or falling down. In the original, it's actually the same verb each of these three times. First, we have the oil running down the beard. Then we have the oil once again running down Aaron's beard. And then in verse 3, we have the dew falling or running down on the mountains. And you see the direction of this, that there's something that's coming down as the pilgrims go up. So we ascend to the heavenly Jerusalem, gathered in God's presence, and he descends, he condescends, giving us grace. And friends, this is one of the things that's so necessary for Christian worship is to understand this dynamic. That God descends giving gifts. In Jesus, this is what he does to give us gifts, to forgive our sins, to renew us in strength, to grant us hope. This is the direction of, of all of the Christian life is that we're dependent and we're needy and we're weak. And there has to be a certain urgency as we gather. Sometimes people will say, well, Chuck, when you speak of this renewal and refreshment that takes place, it's just not my experience in this season of my life. I find when I come to church 
that I'm not actually engaging with God the way I want to or perhaps the way I once did. And there is something to those seasons of life in the Christian experience that we all must just frankly acknowledge because we've all been there. But one of the keys for us is to restore that sense of need and urgency when we do find ourselves spiritually flat. And we give a moment, each service, in order to experience that. It's a moment that could perhaps just go missed. It's right at the beginning of the service. We tell you just to take a moment of silence to prepare yourself. Because here's the thing. When we go spiritually flat, when we're not experiencing the grace of God as we gather and assemble together, it's not that God has failed on any of his promises. It's not that God is not present. It's just simply that we aren't prepared to receive that we're not there present in a way in which we can hear from him, in which we can take from him as to what he's offering. And that is a common experience in our frail bodies and all of the weaknesses that we carry, is that we can encounter God in that way where we're just dull and tired and it all feels somewhat empty. But we have to renew that sense of expectation. And so in that little brief moment prior to the service, my prayer is normally concentrated on Psalm 90. It's in verse 14. And there in verse 14 is an ancient prayer of Moses. And he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice in you all of our days. God, come and do something in our midst today to satisfy us with what you have done in Jesus that we can then turn to rejoice in you. Because that's what has to happen here today. That's what has to happen for you, and that's what has to happen to me. And we have to feel the urgency and the need of that. If we have no urgency and we have no need, then this dynamic of renewal will not take place. It will simply fall on deaf ears. And so prepare in that moment prior to the service. Prepare the morning of. Ask God to meet with you. Ask God to meet with us, to satisfy us that morning, that he would shape and direct our lives. This is what makes worship good and pleasant in Psalm 133. Final piece, though, of these dynamics is found in the last half of verse 3. We see that we are renewed specifically in hope. As you follow verse 3, he ends with, For the Lord has commanded the blessing... Life forevermore. God commanded a blessing that there was to be life forevermore, or you could say eternal life. And that life and blessing was extended through Mount Zion. This is where the temple was and the apparatus of the priesthood dwell. All of the promises of God were mediated through Mount Zion in the Old Testament. Of course, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he provocatively proclaims that he's the fulfillment of all of the shadows of the Old Testament. And so temple and priest are now mediated through him. And so we read that the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. And that's no longer on the mountain there in the city of Jerusalem. But he's commanded that blessing in Jesus Christ. And so all who are united to him, all who share in him, that blessing is yours, life forevermore, the life of the age to come. 
You experience it even now, John argues in John chapter 10. But then we will have it in the world to come when God comes to restore and to renew everything. When God raises dead bodies, when God takes the broken creation and restores it to what it's intended to be. And when we gather together, this is one of the very distinct dimensions in which God is renewing us. Because you see, our great hope is not simply in things going well for us in this life. Our great hope is set upon a horizon when God restores and renews everything. Because we know, we're convicted, that when things go well in this life, it is only but a picture. Because this world is shot through with sin. And even in the most fulfilling moments, we know that it's very frail and it can always be taken away. And the great horizon for us is when God restores and renews all of that and takes away the possibility of all that frailty and all of that corruption. This is what real hope is. And when Christians assemble, when we gather, this is what we are encouraged to put our hope in, in Jesus who is the down payment, that in going down on the cross and going down into death and being crushed for sin, he has taken the burden that you and I deserve. And he has then defeated that because he was the one righteous man. And he was therefore raised from the dead. And therefore we can stand in front of God and have relationship with him only because of Jesus. And so we look to him in faith. And because of this same Jesus we have confidence that we'll participate in the world to come. This is far from like an insurance policy where you're just hoping that it'll work out afterwards. It's far from that. This is a profound hope. It's a certainty. Not just to give you something after, but that the world would be restored to what it was always intended to be. And so these are the dynamics of Christian worship. What unites us? We're united around this gracious hospitality that ultimately God has shown us his love and welcomed us in Jesus Christ. And so we extend that same hospitality and welcome to everyone in our midst regardless. We don't distinguish according to the flesh. We experience this unity in the powers of renewal. God in our midst, speaking to us through his word, present by his spirit, all his promises being there for us to access. That unites us. And then we're united in this hope, this very different vision of the future, of the world corrected, restored, and renewed, made whole. This is the union that Christians share. This is what God has for us as we ascend to Zion. He descends to us and blesses us. And so let's ask him to do so today. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks this morning for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ and all the promises that are ours in him. We confess that so often we have a limited view of those promises that we don't trust and we don't believe. Restore us and renew us. Give us a sense of urgency and expectation that as we gather and call upon you, you are present and that you will renew us and vitalize us and grant us life. And we ask that you'd fill us with hope that in our sad and in our tired world, 
There is a vision of this world renewed and restored and everything being made right. We long for that, God. We ask that you would fill us with that hope. We pray in Jesus' name.